The Walks Around Britain podcast is sponsored by Travel, the world leader for vehicle-specific dog guards, boot dividers, boot liners, rubber mats and more. Visit travel.co.uk to check out the product range for the car you drive. On the 36th edition of the Walks Around Britain podcast, we go behind the lens with photographer and writer John Sparks. Hello and you're very welcome to the 36th edition of the Walks Around Britain podcast. I'm Andrew White and I'm your walking guide for the next 30 or so minutes of walking and outdoor chat. Now this edition is the first in an occasional series we're calling Behind the Lens, where we invite an outdoor photographer to talk about how they got into photography and also to talk us through three examples of their work to tell us the stories behind those images. Today it's John Sparks. If you've read any outdoor magazine or bought any outdoor book over the last 20 years, you've probably either seen one of John's images or read some of John's words. He's mostly associated with cycling, but has been known to take photographs about climbing and write walking guidebooks for the AA. To see the images we'll be talking about, simply click on the links in the podcast description. If you're listening to this podcast on a television which doesn't allow you to click on links, then either use a phone or a tablet to see the images, or you can see the images on the video version of the podcast on our YouTube channel or on Walks Around Britain Plus. So here's my chat with John Sparks, Behind the Lens. Thanks very much for coming on our podcast, John. You're welcome. So tell me, what is it that you do? Well, there's not quite a one-word answer to that. I, uh, <laughs> For many years, I would put photographer and writer on business cards and all of that. But I think in the last few years, it would be a more accurate description, say writer and photographer. But it's for my professional career, I've been full-time freelance for something like 26 years. And I was part-time for quite a few years before that. It's been very much a mix of writing and photography. In a lot of cases, books and magazine articles where you are doing both the words and the pictures. And the, the other sort of linking thread in all of it is the outdoors whether it's pure landscape photography or walking guidebooks cycling guidebooks features on various outdoor pursuits outdoor destinations so very mixed bag and i've had to sort of be somewhat agile because marketplaces change and opportunities come along in different areas so keeps you on your toes the interesting thing about the way that the writing and the photography business has changed has been this combining of the two, where one person is kind of now expected to do both of those. Yes. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I have done assignments and books and things where I have only done one. Mm. Very few times where I've done the words and actually had someone at my side taking pictures, but I have experienced that. But most of the time, obviously, in a lot of cases, if you take magazine publishers, it's both probably cheaper, but also a whole lot more convenient for them if the writer and the photographer are the same person. Yeah, to deal with one person rather than two. Quite apart from anything else, if you're a guidebook publisher, for instance, and the person who's writing the description of the walk or the bike ride or whatever it is, is also the person who's taking the pictures, you should be able to be confident that when they say the picture is on top of haystacks yeah. or Kinder Scout or wherever, that is actually where it is. 
that they haven't got the two confused. No, I just hope not. No, <laughs> because there are there are from time to time you do see instances in all kinds of media where somebody's done the words and then a picture editor's gone online for a picture of Snowden or a picture of Everest and the picture they've come up with isn't Snowden. It's <laughs> somewhere near Snowden or it's you know somewhere near Everest. Um, yeah. And that was in the keywords that they searched by. Often the keywords in these kind of search functions, you kind of put nearby places, don't you, in mm. order to, to flag up that. Yeah. I mean, if you take something like Everest, it's perfectly reasonable to talk about the Everest region or en route to Everest. All sorts. So the word comes up, Yeah. even as the picture shows some other mountain. So how did you get into photography? Well, this goes right back to ancient history when I was at Really, even before I went to university, I got my first camera when I was about 14, I think. You know, I would hesitate to use a posh word like documented, but one of the first trips that I recorded with a camera was a family holiday to Norway mm-hmm. and uh, going to see glaciers and things. So there were sort of seeds of something there, I guess. And then in my college years, uh, the college had a dark room and I discovered that side of photography which of course a lot of people never get to experience now but it was initially more of a hobby and when I first started thinking about it in any kind of professional context it was this thing of being able to take photographs to to back up the writing and in some cases you absolutely have to be if not the same person actually taking the pictures and doing the words you have to be in the same team If you're writing about a specific climb or a specific trek or something like that, the photographer really, really needs to be someone who's there in the the same place at the same time. So documenting that that specific journey as opposed to the route. Yes, yes. I mean, some of the early stuff I did was specifically more to do with rock climbing and mountaineering. And if you're talking about we were doing such and such a climb and it started raining or, you know, you're telling a very specific story about what happened to your particular team on that occasion and it's vastly more relevant and more likely to sell if you have the pictures that match those words in that story so in a way now has it gone full circle you started out writing and the photography was allied to that has it gone back to that now i think to a large extent it has yes you know i mean a lot of the process is totally different of course because we've had a complete paradigm shift in terms of the technology we use but at the most basic level it has gone back to being spending more of my time actually writing than taking pictures so we've got three images which we're going to have a look at Mm -hmm. and talk about how they came about where they were and more about the background to them so the first one people listening will be able to click on the, the links in the description and if you're watching on youtube you'll be able to see the pictures now Talk us through that first image. Yeah, that's Falton Fell in the uh, sort of south-eastern corner of Cumbria, which a lot of people will have seen because it's very close to the M6. If you're going up to the lakes and you turn off, but the usual South Lakes turn off that goes up past Kendall and towards Windermere and Ambleside, yeah. and it's there's a craggy hill overlooking that junction, just on the side of that, beyond the skyline, there's some wonderful limestone pavement there. And uh, if you look at the photograph, you've got Ingleborough in the far distance. So you're looking across into Yorkshire. Um, And I think one of the things that I like to sort of bring out when you're looking at that particular picture is 
that this is a place I've been to lots of times and somewhere that I obviously really appreciate, really love, just as a, as a place to go for a walk, take friends for a walk, but specifically wondering with the camera, there's something about the landscape that seems to be sort of endlessly rewarding. So I think it's real, and perhaps this is very relevant now, although this is not a place that I is so near to me that I could go there in lockdown, but there is a lot of reward in exploring places close to home and seeing the way that different light and different seasonal conditions, different weather conditions, profoundly change the way they appear to you. Yeah. This one is classic sort of landscape photography light. It's quite late in the evening, and you can tell by looking at that ash tree that it's middle of winter. So the tree is bare, and that's, I think, that works particularly well with this kind of image because it doesn't fill up so much of the image in the way that the tree would if it was in full leaf. You can't mm-hmm. see through it. But because of the familiarity that I've built up through a number of visits, I knew on my way there that there almost certainly would be a point where there'd be this really nice light just raking across the very slightly tilted limestone pavement and picking out every branch of the tree. So you get lots of texture in the, in the, pave, the limestone pavement and lots of colour because the, sun, the sort of evening light getting close to sunset is very warm, but the areas that are in shadow, which are only getting light from the blue sky, look much colder. So you get quite a lot of contrast of colour, which gives it that vibrancy. And you um, find that between the foreground and the background, between that split in the pavement, don't you? Yeah, I, I mean, people talk about magic hour and not every shot has to be, t- I mean, I would possibly the ones that I've selected tend towards kind of magic hour, mm. but not every photograph has to be taken at that time. But obviously from, from the landscape photographer's point of view, time around dawn and dusk tends to be particularly rewarding. But there are also cases where far and away the best time to take a shot, maybe in the middle of the day because it's a narrow gorge and the sunlight only penetrates in the middle of the day or there's a, a crag which is orientated so that the light is, picks out the detail when it's because the sun's in the south and the crag faces west or yeah. something, you know, that kind of thing. So there's not a simple formula. Magic hour isn't everything. I also like the fact the tree looks like with its arms extended, mm. it looks like mm. it's bringing the viewer into the photo. Yes, and it's very asymmetrical. Mm. Pretty clearly it's been sculpted by the wind. And actually, if you wander around that area, there's a lot of smaller ones that are even more lopsided. Because as soon as they poke their first shoots up above the shelter where they've started to grow in one of the grikes in the pavement, the prevailing wind tends to push them one way. The next image that we have then is of this clearly island-based, or a bay. Tell us about this one. Actually, no, that's actually cloud that you can see there. Wow in the valley uh, it looks house. like yeah i can totally see why you <laughs> see that but if you look closely at the blow-up image then it is in fact a cloud and it's it's a wow. unusually flat cloud inversion as well yeah that's hampsfell which is southern extremity of the lake district between grangeover sands and cartmel and you're looking in the skyline in the background you've got the coniston fells and the langdale pikes right so which which will locate it for a lot of people Yes, yeah. And that was a case where I'm trying to remember exactly where I'd been. I'd been doing, I think, mostly deliveries. So it had been a fairly dull day driving around. 
and then towards the end of the day I was heading home and I didn't know at all the weather conditions were going to do this but I kind of had some sort of inkling that they just might and in any case if nothing I thought at least I'll get a walk and get some fresh air so instead of coming straight home I did go a little bit out of my way and when I even when I parked the car sort of where the road crosses the ridge halfway up here I was in mist and I wasn't at all sure what was going to happen but grabbed the camera and the tripod and so on and set out anyway and hadn't gone very far before I started to find myself in the boundary between the mist and the clear air I pretty much knew something was going to happen and actually it was a one of the it's one of those times as a photographer when you almost don't know where to put yourself because there's amazing shots in every direction and you actually have to again I think fall back on experience to some extent and try and work out what if you like what story you're trying to tell yeah and sort of distill things down to something relatively simple because one of the dangers with, I think, with landscape photography is the eye and the brain together kind of focus on a few things. The camera sees anything that's in front of it fairly indiscriminately. So you've got to learn to see more like the way the camera does and anticipate all of that, the things you might have overlooked. And that could be anything from a pylon cable in the distance or a pit of litter in the foreground or just that, in fact, if I only moved a few paces to the right or something, I'd, like in this case, get a clear shot between those two clumps of trees and also that one sort of isolated tree in the middle distance. Sometimes you reason this out consciously and sometimes I think as with experience, you start to see things more intuitively and almost non-verbally. There's a complex mental process going on, but it can happen really quickly because you've done it a lot of times before. Yeah. And for that, again, it comes down to that concept of of understanding that this is what you do as opposed to it, it just comes naturally to you, mm. doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. And I think the thing that perhaps all of these shots illustrate from my perspective is that photography is all about seeing, but you don't just point the camera at the first thing you see. Yeah. And so that when people talk about point and shoot, point and shoot is not a type of camera. It's much more a mindset. Yeah, because you can point and shoot with the most expensive camera around, can't you? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And I mean, this is why some people can spend a fortune on gear and never really wow you with their photography. And other people actually get some really great pictures just with, in a lot of cases, even with something simple as a mobile phone. You're listening to the Walks Around Britain podcast. I hope you're enjoying my chat with John. If you'd like to see more of John's work, his website is johnsparks.zenfolio.com and that's John without a H. Don't forget to get the latest Walks Around Britain podcast when it drops. You can subscribe to us using your favourite podcast platform. And if you like what we do, we'd really appreciate a lovely review on that podcast platform too. The Walks Around Britain podcast is brought to you by Travel, the world-leading manufacturer and retailer of vehicle-specific dog guards, boot dividers, boot liners, rubber mats and more. Adding travel products enables you to get out and enjoy walking adventures with friends, family and dogs so that everybody enjoys the journey. Travel offers the best fit guarantee of any brand, 
when purchasing direct through their website or your money back. Visit travel.co.uk to see the product range available for the car you drive. Now back to John to talk about the last of his three images. So looking at the last image then, that's a very stunning shot. Talk us through that one. The hill in the middle, or in the background there, is Pendle Hill. Yeah. And this is from sort of high up on the ridge of the Forest of Boland and looking down towards Gisborne Forest and the Water of Stocks Reservoir. And this, I think, one of the things that this illustrates for me and the reason I picked it out is that it's a good illustration of that saying that about no such thing as bad weather. This this was a pretty unpromising day. And one of the beauties of landscape photography is, by and large, even if you don't get great shots, you get a decent walk. Yeah. So this was, this was definitely one of those cases where go for a walk, hope for the best, and you just had enough of a parting of the clouds to create that those patches of light. And one of the things that they do is then they... And along with the fact that the visibility is a little bit hazy, so that the various ridges at different distances sort of separate, and you get a very strong sense of depth. And the colours, I think, are very yeah. intense, aren't they? But but quite subtle. Yes, I mean a lot of the, a lot of the shot, particularly the sky, is almost monochrome. Mm. So the patches of particularly the green, I guess, and particularly where there's a bit of sunlight on the green, they stand out all the more. I'm glad you've picked out on this shot because it, it is one that I'm I'm very uh, proud of, you know. And the fact that it isn't, whereas both of the others are sort of golden hour that we've mentioned, and they are that that time of day that's often singled out for landscape photography. But this is much nearer. It would be early afternoon, I think. Sun's still quite high. You can sort of get a sense of the angle of the sun. It's still, you know, you can't see exactly, but it's quite high up in the sky. It's well before. Mm-hmm sunset and but because of the clouds and the uh, haze and i think potentially in the distance there might be some rain even one of the things about this is this is a case where i would be interested to see what someone could do on a compact camera or a phone but if you actually look at how dark some of the clouds are and how dark the shadows are in the foreground and how bright other bits of cloud are further away. There's a very, very big range there between the darkest tones and the lightest tones, which is what we photographers call dynamic range. And that is something where bigger cameras like SLRs and some of the mirrorless cameras that there are around in the last few years tend to still be much more capable. I think with a lot of simpler cameras, however attractive the simplicity is, you might find with a picture like that that you'd end up with a completely black foreground or else some of the cloud just going to a sort of empty kind of white. And I think the fact that you've got... With no sort of you detail. You lose the yet. detail and, and, and in losing hmm. the detail, you lose some of the depth and some of the sense of being there, the immediacy of it. So there, is, there are... I don't want to decry the capabilities of phones and compact cameras and so on for all sorts of things, but... They do still have their limitations, and high dynamic range is one of them. I know that iPhones, for instance, which I've used a bit, have a high dynamic range HDR mode, but it's still, certainly with the ones I've used, it's not perfect. 
Some of those work by taking two different mm. exposures, mm. don't they, and then marrying the yeah. two up somehow. Yeah. And of course, you have problems if you have moving subjects because you then have two mm. two different exposures which are some fraction of a second apart. And if you are actually shooting action of any kind, and that includes not just people cycling or walking or whatever, but if there's running water, if they're breaking waves, uh, lots of things where you start to get double imaging problems. I have, in extreme situations, I've done the same kind of thing with dynamic range, but it does, does tend to break down when you're dealing with moving subjects. Really, it's about knowing the limitations of your devices as opposed to saying that you can't do something or yes. it's just finding yes. a, a, a different way of doing there's something. Nothing, there's nothing to lose by giving it a go, of course. Mm. But this this could be, if if a photograph like this appeals to people, and it probably will divide opinion to some extent because it's not so much the conventional kind of sunny, colourful landscape that often gets sort of blasted around everywhere. Well, then give it a go with whatever camera you've got, but maybe don't be totally amazed if it doesn't quite come out like this. And there's a certain amount of uh, work being done on this afterwards as well. I mean, I use Lightroom. There's lots of apps you can use for processing. But if you haven't got the information, detail in the shadows or in those brightest highlights, you can't bring it back, whatever you do afterwards. Do you necessarily need, if you've got an SLR or a mirrorless, to be taking raw images, are JPEGs okay? What's the best? Depends on the kind of usage that you need afterwards. Depends on kind of usage, but again, with a shot like that, if you ha- if you shoot in a JPEG, the point about JPEG is that processing happens in the camera, whereas if you shoot raw, the processing happens later, and you have mm. more chance to tweak it and fine tune it to your own liking. And with JPEGs, particularly if you, a lot of cameras have a lot of different jpeg modes the ones i'm most familiar with are the nikon slrs and the um that aspect is very very similar with the new z series the nikon mirrorless but it's true of most slr and mirrorless brands that you have a number of options to shoot jpeg and your default thing might be well i'm shooting landscape so i'll use the landscape mode and it will um, use a particular jpeg setting but even that because one of the things that it will be aiming to do is to produce a result that looks quite punchy and colourful straight out of camera, is that you could lose detail in those extreme bright or dark areas. Mm. And if you if it is a JPEG, that detail's been thrown away and you can't get it back. But there are also, for instance, portrait mode goes for a more subtle result and probably preserves more of that detail, and then you have a bit more headroom to play with it afterwards. Sometimes you'll see that there's a... Like on the Nikon cameras, there's a JPEG setting which is flat. And, uh, you know, out of the camera, it looks like the name suggests. It's not very appealing because it looks a bit dull, but it preserves more detail. Is that designed so that you, <laughs> yes. can, you can get that, yes, it preserves that quality the detail. afterwards? Yes. Right. And in fact, a tip, there is a tip here for those people who do shoot RAW, is that it's still worth looking at what the JPEG setting on your camera is because the image that you see on the camera back is basically derived from what the JPEG image you shoot would look like. Right. So what I do most of the time if I'm shooting landscape and so on is I have my JPEG setting at the flat setting because that actually gives me the best indication of whether the RAW, which is what I'm actually recording, is capturing detail in the shadows and in the highlights. 
There's also a tip here is to make sure that the brightness and any kind of colour saturation on your actual screen, if you use the mm-hmm. screen very often, is that that isn't artificially boosted yeah. because that could affect what quality photos you take. Yes, and that's very interesting because, I mean, I've got, you know, I'm not one of these people who's actually got cupboards and cupboards full of camera gear, but um, I've got a number of SLRs. I've got three Nikon SLRs that I've used for a number of years, one of which is oh, must be nearly 10 years old, and it is noticeable that the screen on that probably wasn't ever as good as more modern ones are, it doesn't have such high resolution, but also I don't think the colour rendition is quite as accurate. But it's actually changed over time, it seems, that still takes the pictures themselves that come out of it are just as good, but the screen image is a less good guide to uh, what the final result is going to be. But the other thing you always have, virtually every digital camera has it, is the histogram. And I know we're getting technical now, but that is a really useful thing to learn to, to use because that is the thing that really gives you some clues as to how much detail you are or are not preserving in your shadows and your highlights. What would be a really good thing here would be as if there was some sort of a book that somebody could recommend. Well, let me think. <laughs> if you wanted to get more seriously yes. into digital photography, could, there, could yes. there be something like that available? Well, funnily, funnily enough, there is something that I would um, consider recommending. Mm. It does actually have my name on the cover. <laughs> Because there is a book on outdoor photography, which is available from Cicerone Press. They're a very wonderful outdoor publisher. I'm sure most people know their work. And it's outdoor photography. And I did first edition of this way back when I was still shooting film. And a few years ago, we produced a second edition and I brought in Collie Culture's Dakin to brought... I mean, she's got experience in some areas that I know much less about, such as underwater photography. So, and we wanted to bring in more detailed coverage of a few more areas. So uh, the second edition is very much a, a joint offering. It's been out a few years, so it doesn't, in a few respects, talking about types of cameras, it's probably very slightly out of date. It doesn't say very much about mirrorless, for instance, as far as I recall. But 99% of what's in there when it comes to technique technique yeah. and approaches to shooting and preparation, what to take if you're going on a trek, anything like, you know, or other expeditions, take photographs under more extreme circumstances, shoot different kinds of activity. Most of it doesn't change. Yeah. And it is all grounded very much in real world experience. And we have tried very much to make it not too technical and relevant to most people who are prepared to put in a little bit of, I think it's thought more than anything. You know, it's not necessarily learning a great deal of technical stuff. A certain amount of that definitely helps, but you don't have to get bogged down in it. But actually being willing to think about what you're doing and what kind of, what story you're trying to tell with the photos you're taking, if you like. And of course, that's available at good independent bookshops as well as uh, other Being places. Being you often find them in outdoor shops as well as bookshops. Yeah. But of course, they also have a very good website where uh, you can get it online. John, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, talking us through those stunning images and giving us some hints and tips about what we could be doing. Thank you. Well, thanks very much. I really enjoyed it. That's it for another podcast. Don't forget there's Walking Inspiration 24-7 on our Netflix for Walking subscription service, Walks Around Britain Plus. Visit our website for a seven-day free trial. If you'd like to suggest a topic or would just like to comment on something, then by all means send us an email, podcast at walksaroundbritain.co.uk. And don't forget to follow us on social media. 
You'll find us on Twitter, Facebook, Insta, Pinterest and YouTube. Until next time, thanks for listening and happy walking. The Walks Around Britain podcast is sponsored by Travel, the world leader for vehicle-specific dog guards, boot dividers, boot liners, rubber mats and more. Visit travel.co.uk to check out the product range for the car you drive.